Hello, everyone. This is Scott Fraser, one of Cedar Fort Publishing's authors and a guest teacher for the podcast series, Come Follow Me with David Ridges. We are going to discuss Doctrine and Covenants section 29 today, which is lesson 13 for March 22nd to the 28th. This revelation was given to Joseph Smith in the presence of several other brethren of the church in September 1830. According to the Come, Follow Me manual, this was a time when early church members had many doctrinal questions. They had read prophecies in the Book of Mormon about the gathering of Israel and the building up of Zion. The revelations Hiram Page had claimed to have received through his magic stone in Doctrine and Covenants 28 addressed these subjects, which only increased members' curiosity as to the truth. Other people wondered about the fall of Adam and Eve and spiritual death. Now, some sections in the Doctrine and Covenants are indeed answers to questions asked by Joseph Smith or other church members. This seems to be one of those sections because there are numerous seemingly unrelated doctrinal principles. D&C 29 is packed with gospel information, but it is not about just one principle. It is about how future events relate and tie into one another. So, instead of looking for one principle, I am going to take you through the whole section, picking up valuable information along the way. Now, this can be a difficult section of scriptures to read. Section 29 is written much like Isaiah and John the Beloved wrote. Both the books of Isaiah and Revelations are written in a way that does not follow timelines. For those of us who are linear thinkers, like me, this can be rather frustrating. I prefer that a story start at its beginning and consecutively relate events until the end. Isaiah, Revelations, and Doctrine and Covenants section 29 follow events back and forth across millennia. For example, D&C 29 starts in the present day of 1830, jumps to the second coming, then to the millennium, then to the resurrection. Then it jumps to the days before the second coming, then back to the resurrection. Then the section takes us to the judgment and jumps back to the pre-existence and then forward to the Garden of Eden. I'm going to teach this section in the same order that you read it, but please know that we will be going back and forth through time. But before we go into this, let's review the future so that we can understand the teachings in their appropriate context. I'm going to give you four events that you should try to keep in your head during this lesson. First, we will start to see the signs of the second coming. Second, we will see the second coming of the Savior. Now I say we, though I don't really expect to be alive to see that in my body. Number three, this begins the millennium. With it, the resurrection of righteous souls really takes off. Then we live through the thousand years of the millennium. The resurrection will continue during that time. Number four, at the end of the millennium, people will again start to fall away from the church. Then we will have yet another change. The earth will be consumed, and there will be a new heaven and a new earth. It is easy to confuse the destructions that will happen in the second coming at the beginning of the millennium from the destructions that will occur at the end of the millennium, and we will try to note those as we go along. So to begin the section, the Lord mentions in verse 2 that he will gather his people as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings. I have always thought that was a very comforting simile. Then he brings up yet another simile as he reviews the brethren's responsibilities. Reading in verse 4, Verily I say unto you that ye are chosen out of the world to declare my gospel with the sound of rejoicing, as with the voice of a trump. The voice of a trump or trumpet announces something. Throughout history, trumps were used to announce the arrival of royalty. In verses 13 and 26, 
we are told that a trump, played by Michael the Archangel in Jerusalem, will be used to announce the beginnings of the millennium and its resurrection. We'll get more on that in a minute. In verse 7, the Lord tells the brethren of another responsibility, the gathering of the elect. In verse 7, we read, And ye are called to bring to pass the gathering of mine elect. For mine elect hear my voice, and harden not their hearts. Wherefore, the decree hath gone forth from the Father, that they shall be gathered in unto one place upon the face of this land, to prepare their hearts, and be prepared in all things against the day when tribulation and desolation are sent forth upon the wicked. The church was still in Fayette, New York at this time. Whether the brethren had any idea that this gathering would eventually take place in Utah is rather doubtful. Utah would become the secluded gathering place for the church to prepare our hearts for the tribulation of the future days and, of course, the second coming. This is a good segue into the signs of the second coming, which actually start in verse 9. Verse 9 we read, For the hour is nigh and the day soon at hand, when the earth is ripe, and all the proud and they that do wickedly shall be as stubble, and I will burn them up. Then the Lord jumps ahead to his second coming and reveals he won't be alone. His twelve apostles from Jerusalem will be joining him. Reading from verse 11 and 12, For I will reveal myself from heaven with power and great glory with all the hosts thereof, and dwell in righteousness with men on earth a thousand years, and the wicked shall not stand. And again, verily, verily, I say unto you, and it hath gone forth in a firm decree by the will of the Father, that mine apostles, the twelve which were with me in my ministry at Jerusalem, shall stand at my right hand at the day of my coming in a pillar of fire, being clothed with robes of righteousness, with crowns upon their heads, in glory, even as I am, to judge the whole house of Israel, even as many as have loved me and kept my commandments, and none else. This section really goes back and forth through history and different points in our future. But there's one singular event that the Lord uses twice as a point of time reference to help us follow the events of the second coming listed in Doctrine and Covenants section 29. That singular event is a trumpet blast, which signals the beginning of the resurrection. It is noted in both verse 13 and verse 26. In verse 13 we read, For a trump shall sound both long and loud, even as upon Mount Sinai, and all the earth shall quake, and they shall come forth, yea, even the dead which died in me, to receive a crown of righteousness, and to be clothed upon, even as I am, to be with me, that we may be one. Now immediately after verse 13, verse 14 takes us back in time yet again to the signs of the second coming. Please note the emphasis. But behold, I say unto you, that before this great day shall come, the sun shall be darkened, and the moon shall be turned into blood, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and there shall be greater signs in heaven above and in the earth beneath, and there shall be weeping and wailing among the hosts of men, and there shall be a great hailstorm sent forth to destroy the crops of the earth, and it shall come to pass, because of the wickedness of the world, that I will take vengeance upon the wicked, for they will not repent. For the cup of my indignation is full, for behold, my blood shall not cleanse them if they hear me not." Wherefore I, the Lord God, will send forth flies upon the face of the earth, which shall take hold of the inhabitants thereof, and shall eat their flesh, and shall cause maggots to come in upon them. And their tongues shall be stayed, that they shall not utter against me. And their flesh shall fall from off their bones, and their eyes from their sockets. And it shall come to pass that the beasts of the forest and fowls of the air shall devour them up. And the great and abominable church, which is the whore of all the earth, 
shall be cast down by devouring fire, according as it is spoken by the mouth of Ezekiel the prophet, who spoke of these things, which have not come to pass, but surely must, as I live, for abominations shall not reign. Now we'll talk more on these signs of the times at the end of the lesson. But for now, get ready for another time shift. I think that the Lord is trying to give this revelation so that we can see how future events are linked together. The next two verses jump ahead all the way to the end of the millennium and the destruction that will cause old things to become new again. The phrase, there shall be a new heaven and a new earth, is a phrase that you should look for to distinguish the destruction at the end of the millennium from the destruction of the second coming at the beginning of the millennium. So let's read in verses 22 to 25. And again, verily, verily, I say unto you, that when the thousand years are ended, and men again begin to deny their God, then I will spare the earth but for a little season, and the end shall come, and the heaven and the earth shall be consumed and pass away, and there shall be a new heaven and a new earth. For all old things shall pass away, and all things shall become new, even the heaven and the earth, all the fullness thereof, both men and beasts, the fowls of the air, and the fishes of the sea. And not one hair, neither moat, shall be lost, for it is the workmanship of my hand. Now we go back once again to the sounding of the trump in verse 26. And we read, But behold, verily I say unto you, Before the earth shall pass away, Michael, mine archangel, shall sound his trump, and then shall all the dead awake, for their graves shall be opened, and they shall come forth, yea, even all. Now this trumpet blast will apparently be played by Michael in Jerusalem, and as mentioned, it will signal the start of the major resurrection of the dead. Please note that the resurrection started with Jesus Christ, and some unknown number of souls have been resurrected since the Savior led the way. I picture the trumpet blast as signaling the beginning of the resurrection of the millennium, when the resurrection will get serious about resurrecting souls. In verses 27 and 28, we read a couple of verses that illustrate the law of justice. As members of the church, we sometimes forget that the law of justice is just as important as the law of mercy. It is a harsher law and not as comfortable for us to discuss. It reads, And the righteous shall be gathered on my right hand unto eternal life, and the wicked on my left hand will I be ashamed to own before the Father. Wherefore I say unto them, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And now behold, I say unto you, Never at any time have I declared from mine own mouth that they should return. For where I am they cannot come, for they have no power. Now I have heard teachings over the years that the final judgment is not really going to be final and that all people can repent and work their way into the celestial kingdom no matter what their choices have been on earth. I really can't find support for that doctrine in the scriptures, and verses 27 to 29 in this section argue against the whole idea as well. We are now going to jump to verse 31 to 32, which discusses the difference between spiritual and temporal creations. In verse 31, For by the power of my Spirit created I them, yea, all things, both spiritual and temporal. First spiritual, secondly temporal, which is the beginning of my work, and again, first temporal and secondly spiritual, which is the last of my work. We know that in the creation, God created all things, first in the spiritual form and then in the physical or temporal form. This explains the phrase, first spiritual, secondly temporal, which is the beginning of my work. In the middle of that verse, the Lord then jumps ahead in time towards the final judgment, where we shall be enjoying our temporal existence on earth. If the results of our final judgment are poor, 
it will become a spiritual death for us when we die, as we will be banished from God's presence forever. This explains, if you are reading along with me, and again first temporal, and secondly spiritual, which is the last of my work. Now, in a continuation of the difference between spiritual and temporal, the Lord explains that commandments, in his mind, are all spiritual. He says in verse 34, Wherefore, verily I say unto you that all things unto me are spiritual, and not at any time have I given you a law which was temporal, neither any man nor the children of men, neither Adam your father, whom I created. Behold, I gave unto him that he should be an agent unto himself, and I gave unto him commandments, but no temporal commandment gave I unto him, for my commandments are spiritual. They are not natural nor temporal, neither carnal nor sensual. David Ridges explains in his book that all that God does is designed to promote our spirituality and eternal well-being, so everything is spiritual to him. I might also add that all of God's goals and his goals for us are spiritual in nature. We are on earth itself because our spirits needed to be tested and proved. Our earthly mission is to come out of earth life as wiser, more mature, and empathetic spirits. By that measure, everything that God commands of us is spiritual in nature. This is actually in sharp contrast to the fact that probably over 95% of what we do in our lives is temporal. We sleep, feed our bodies, and work so that we can continue to sleep, feed our bodies, and enjoy our weekends. Our only spiritual times are on the Sabbath day and whatever small statues of time we can find during the week to read our scriptures or possibly visit the temple. So now get ready for another time jump, all the way back to the pre-existence. In verse 36, the Lord starts speaking about the devil tempting Adam, and then he digresses to the pre-existence. Turning to D&C 29.36, we read, And it came to pass that Adam, being tempted of the devil, for behold, the devil was before Adam, for he rebelled against me, saying, Give me thine honor, which is my power, and also a third part of the host of heaven turned he away from me because of their agency. And they were thrust down, and thus came the devil and his angels. And behold, there is a place prepared for them from the beginning, which place is hell. And it must needs be that the devil should tempt the children of men, or they could not be agents unto themselves. For if they never should have bitter, they could not know the sweet. Thus we learn about the origins of Satan, and where he is needed in the organization of earth as a testing grounds. Though clues are given in other scriptures, this is actually the most concise description that we have of Satan's rebellion, his job to tempt the children of men, and his eventual residence in a place prepared for him. In verse 40, we jump back to the Garden of Eden. After Adam partakes of the fruit, we read in verse 41, Wherefore I, the Lord God, caused that he should be cast out from the Garden of Eden, from my presence, because of his transgression, wherein he became spiritually dead, which is the first death, even that same death which is the last death, which is spiritual, which shall be pronounced upon the wicked when I shall say, Depart, ye cursed. As discussed, when Adam was cast out of the Garden of Eden, it was mankind's first spiritual death, or being cut off from the presence of God. If we have a bad final judgment, the last death, which is also spiritual, will mean being cut off from the presence of the Lord for eternity. Now we leave the Garden of Eden and move through all of mankind's history, even to present day. In verse 42, we read, But behold, I say unto you that I, the Lord God, gave unto Adam and unto his seed, that they should not die as to the temporal death, until I, the Lord God, should send forth angels to declare unto them repentance and redemption, 
through faith on the name of mine only begotten Son. As I mentioned, our earthly mission is to come forth to learn wisdom, maturity, and empathy. It's a dangerous time for us, so God sends angels in the form of missionaries, prophets, and other church leaders to declare repentance, redemption, and faith. After going through an explanation that goes back and forth through thousands of years, the Lord summarizes and wraps up the reasons behind his narrative. We read in verses 43, 44, and 49, And thus did I, the Lord God, appoint unto man the days of his probation, that by his natural death he might be raised in immortality unto eternal life, even as many as would believe. And they that believe not unto eternal damnation, for they cannot be redeemed from their spiritual fall, because they repent not. And again I say unto you, that whoso having knowledge have I not commanded to repent? And there you go. With this revelation, you now have a better knowledge of what is going to happen in the future and why it is going to happen. You are now responsible for that knowledge. Are you going to repent and be raised in immortality unto eternal life or believe not unto eternal damnation? The choice is yours. In verses 46 to 47, the Lord adds a quick, oh, by the way, exception to the rule, so there could be no misunderstandings. We all know that little children do not believe in the teachings of the Lord yet but only because they don't understand the meaning of the words themselves. When they can understand these gospel principles and their importance, these children will become accountable. We read in verse 46, But behold, I say unto you, that little children are redeemed from the foundation of the world through mine only begotten. Wherefore, they cannot sin, for power is not given unto Satan to tempt little children until they begin to become accountable before me. So we've reached the end of section 29. But I would like to add one more thought to this lesson on this section. I believe that many church members may not like Doctrine and Covenants 29 for the same reason they don't like the book of Revelations. It's scary. When my wife was a young mother with small children, she didn't want to talk about the second coming. I am pretty sure she would picture herself running away from an earthquake or hailstorm or tornado that was destroying our house and trying to protect four small children in the chaos. Since our children are grown, she has allowed herself to read Revelations and this section in Doctrine and Covenants, but they are not her favorite scriptures. I understand. The verses I read earlier about a darkened sun, a blood-red moon, and falling stars are bad enough. Even worse was the verse about flies taking hold of Earth's inhabitants, eating their flesh, and causing maggots to come in upon them. These verses appear to be taken right out of the worst parts of the book of Revelation. It sounds pretty terrible, doesn't it? So the following is not meant to be a commercial, but I have a podcast called Science and Scriptures, if you ever want to listen to it. Last week, I aired a podcast entitled The Destructive Effects of Fear. I had a section in that podcast called Apocalypse Anxiety, which I feel is pretty common in the church due to the descriptions of the signs of the second coming that we read in the scriptures. I would like to read you some of that section that I wrote. After reading these verses in Doctrine and Covenants 29, I think they are appropriate. So here we go. Many good Christians are highly anxious about having to endure the final days of the apocalypse. The name of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints reminds us of the possibility of witnessing the events described in the book of Revelations. However, even as he taught us about the trials of the days preceding his second coming, the Lord gives us encouragement to not be anxious about it. In Luke 21, the Savior describes the wars, earthquakes, famine, and pestilence of the last days. He also foretells 
that his followers will be persecuted, jailed, betrayed, and hated. These verses, and the Book of Revelations and Doctrine and Covenants, section 29, have the potential of creating loads of anxiety among those reading them. But please note that after listing off all the terrible things that will occur before the second coming, the Savior reassures us. In Luke 21, we read, But there shall not an hair of your head perish. In your patience, possess ye your souls. Possess ye your souls is a poetic phrase that I interpret as, Get a hold of yourself. In Luke 21, Jesus continues his descriptions of the desolation that will come and that those alive will see signs in the sun, moon, and stars. Men's hearts will fail them from fear and from witnessing the signs of the times coming to pass. Even the powers of heaven will be shaken. But then he assures us, And then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And when these things begin to come to pass, then look up and lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. Finally, in the book of Revelations, John the Beloved documents his very symbolic vision of the Apocalypse. Even heavily symbolized, it is quite apparent that none of the world wars or the coronavirus will match the final days before the second coming. In Revelations chapters 8 through 11, we read of seven angels whose trumpet blasts bring hail, fire, falling stars, a darkening sun, smoke, death, and earthquakes. But then, after all this is accomplished, we read in Revelations 21 what happens in the end. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. We know what is going to happen in the end of time. The end of the world as we know it is rather like reading a mystery novel that you spoil by jumping ahead and reading the last few pages. You know how everything turns out. The suspense is gone. If you have a testimony of the gospel, you should have confidence in the final outcome. So that is my recommendation, that we not fear the second coming. The apocalypse has been described in vivid detail, and admittedly, I believe that description is meant to make us aware of the dangers of disobedience. But at the same time, the Savior does not want his true followers to live their lives in fear. Thus, we have these verses that tell us that, in the end, there is nothing to fear, and there shall be no more death neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall be there any more pain. President Russell M. Nelson tells a story about when he was traveling in a small commuter airplane and an engine caught fire and exploded. The plane started to spiral out of control. He mentioned how sorry he felt for one woman who had become uncontrollably hysterical. President Nelson reported that he was calm, even though he knew he might die within a few minutes. He was ready to meet his maker. President Nelson referred to Luke 21:26, which describes that in the latter days men's hearts will fail them for fear. But we need not have such fear if we recognize, as he put it, with an eternal perspective that all will be well. I was once in a similar, though not as dangerous, situation as that of President Nelson. I was also traveling in a small commuter airplane when we entered a major storm cloud. The buffetings were intense. The plane rose and fell like a roller coaster and lightning flashes filled the cockpit. One woman in the back of the plane became uncontrollably hysterical, screaming and pulling her hair. I feared she might actually run to the plane door and try to open it to escape. I got up, sat down next to her, and held her hand until it was all over. I was calmer than I expected to be. I even remember feeling perturbed that this woman was making such a fuss. Afterwards, I recognized that 
Perhaps like President Nelson, I had faith that I knew the ending of the story of Earth life. Had my plane crashed, I would have missed my family terribly, but it would have been only temporary. We would be reunited. In any story, it is the long-term ramifications of the plot that's important. I would have an eternity of time to catch up with my family. It is amazing what that realization does to your outlook on life and your fear of death. If you are one of those people who worries about things far into the future, you don't have to worry about the destruction that will occur at the end of the millennium. The following verse from our lesson today is strangely reassuring. When it is all said and done, and all things have been made new again, in verse 25 we read, And not one hair, neither moat, shall be lost, for it is the workmanship of mine hand. The earth shall be new again, and there will be new opportunities and adventures ahead of us. We will have learned and matured, but we will continue to be who we are. Nothing shall be lost. Well, that is all I have for you today. This is Scott Fraser, guest teaching for the podcast, Come Follow Me with David Ridges. By the way, next week, David Ridges himself will be teaching a special lesson about Easter. Have a good week and take care.